Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Thank you. This was a week, guys. You got through a tough one. This week, this week tested you. This week tested your patience and your sanity and your endurance and your grace. This was the week that Elon Musk and Donald Trump made Kanye West feel really good about his recent life choices. That's how insane this week was. Week began with a midterm afterglow. You know, it was feeling pretty good. Blake Masters is looking forward to spreading more racist white replacement theory in the private sector. The GOP took all this money from capitalists in the election and redistributed their wealth. Donald Trump's daughter, Tiffany, got married. And the most beautiful part of the reception was towards the end of Trump's 45 minute toast where he, he remembered to mention her. It was it was good. The week began where we were calling the election. Polls lost. And by Tuesday, the GOP was in full crazy mode. Carrie Lake found out that she had lost and wouldn't admit it, and Donald Trump announced he was going to run again in full Richard III mode. Now is the winter of our disarray, made glorious bummer by this ton of pork. It was a terrible speech. The right wing's freaking out. They don't want him to run. Ivanka doesn't want him to run. She said she'll have nothing to do with the campaign. I think she told her dad she had bone spurs. That was just Tuesday. By Wednesday, the Republican Party controlled the House of Representatives. Such began the worst period of Kevin McCarthy's life. And believe me, as rough as it is for Kevin right now, it's going to be so much worse as soon as he gets that gavel in his hands. And... He'll be dealing with the craziest parts of his caucus, the most bought and paid for parts of his caucus, the racist parts. He's going to try to please everyone and no one will respect him. He will leave office less respected than John Boehner or Denny Hastert or Paul Ryan. And of course, the Republican Party, which ran a hard race, promising to do something about inflation, promising to do something about a rising crime. They, they figured out how to take care of both uh, investigations into Hunter Biden. They said, not only are we going to help your struggling families by investigating Hunter Biden, we also solemnly vow to be as shitty as possible to trans children. I, that was Wednesday. By Thursday, Nancy Pelosi announced that she was resigning the leadership of the House Democrats. She will still serve. She will still be a congresswoman. She'll sort of be like the Speaker Emeritus. Like, she'll, I guess she'll make Akeem Jeffries wear a, wear a name badge. I don't know. But, um, and then Senny Hoyer said he was going to step down. And Jim Clyburn said he would step down as whip. And so suddenly we have this new squad of Aguilar, of, uh, of, of, of Hakeem Jeffries. The, the, the average median age of the big three 
was 83 years old. Now it's 52. The Democrats got a lot younger, and it took a lot of media attention away from the Republicans' announcements. And then today, today, you thought today'd be calm? You thought we have had enough crazy in the 10 days since midterm elections? No, today, Merrick Garland appointed a war crimes prosecutor from The Hague to oversee the investigations of Donald Trump. Yeah. Attorney General Merrick Garland, as you guys know by now, appointed Jack Smith as a special counsel in charge of two Justice Department investigations involving the former um, host of Celebrity Apprentice who was fired for being racist by NBC. Uh, This is really significant, but it's really torn progressives apart. Now, it does underscore how serious these probes are. And these probes are one into his handling of the classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago, documents that belong to the National Archive, but Trump took them only in America. Would you see librarians get ripped off by an illiterate? And then, of course, uh, there, there was the, his, his attempt to, you know, overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election win, which is official and has not been disproven. And everyone in Donald Trump's own cabinet said it was valid. So there's two ways to view this, right? I mean, we don't know if it's going to change anything about the investigations because they're already proceeding and there may have already been grand juries and paneled we don't know about. But this is not about appointing some tough new prosecutor to take on Trump. Okay, this is about appointing one tough prosecutor to oversee the existing cases against Trump. So there's two ways to view it. You can think this is obviously the Justice Department is making sure that their decision making won't be driven by politics. This is independent. He does ultimately answer to uh, the attorney general. But this is a way of saying, hey, it's going to be independent. No politics here. Or you can view it as this decision will be totally driven by politics. And I've talked to liberals and conservatives who feel both. You know, in his announcement, Garland talked about Donald Trump launching his presidential campaign earlier in the week. And Joe Biden's comments that he's probably going to run for re-election. He said, these are the reasons why I decided to appoint this special counsel. So who is Jack Smith? Well, besides being a guy Donald Trump's going to have a lot of nicknames for by next week, he's a career prosecutor. He headed the DOJ's public integrity section. He stepped down at about five years ago, and he was appointed chief prosecutor for a European Union body investigating war crimes in Kosovo, and he worked out of The Hague. Say it again. Ooh, it's like porn for the angels. A prosecutor from The Hague is looking into Donald Trump. Mm. Oh, it's like, oh, God's buying lube. So he's still overseas. He wasn't even there today. So there's two ways to view this. And believe me, the left viewed it two different ways. And I'm here to tell you, um, (laughs) the people who are convinced know nothing on both sides. I'm proud to say I'm not going to give you my hot take on this because I think both sides have merit. Number one, Merrick Garland has just kicked the can down the road so hard it hit a snooze alarm. It's just more delays, delays, delays. It's cowardice on Merrick Garland's part. He doesn't want to bring an indictment against the former president. So he's doing this to stall for time. The other is the other way of viewing it is he got a prosecutor from The Hague to oversee things against Donald Trump. And he wouldn't do this unless he was certain that indictments were coming. But again, the only thing we know for sure is Donald Trump will be trying out lots of shitty new nicknames for Jack Smith. Here is uh, Attorney General Garland speaking earlier today. Throughout his career, Jack Smith has built a reputation as an impartial and determined prosecutor who leads teams with energy and focus to follow the facts wherever they lead. As special counsel, he will exercise independent prosecutorial judgment to decide whether charges should be brought. 
Although the special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day -day supervision of any official of the department, he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the department. I will ensure that the special counsel receives the resources to conduct this work quickly and completely. Given the work to date and Mr. Smith's prosecutorial experience, I am confident that this appointment will not slow the completion of these investigations. The men and women who are pursuing these investigations are conducting themselves in accordance with the highest standards of professionalism. I could not be prouder of them. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. And I also believe that appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. So guys, here's the thing. Please don't flip out about this because you hear all the guys on the right screaming, oh, it's a witch hunt, it's a witch hunt, and losing their composure completely. And you hear everybody on the left screaming, oh, Merrick Garland's a coward who doesn't want to listen. Folks, there's a time and a place to flip out completely, okay? And it's called Twitter for the last 48 hours. Merrick Garland said the first investigation is the investigation into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election. Well, we know that. We know someone did, right? We, we have lots of evidence. We watched a wonderful miniseries all summer about it. It's about whether Trump or people close to him broke the law to overturn Biden's legitimate election win. I can understand the frustration. We, we know. What do you need, Merrick Garland? What more evidence do you, do you have a special prosecutor to make sure that Will Smith really smacked Chris Rock? Because you know what? We can't, we can't really be sure, can we? We should, we should appoint more investigators. I share your frustration. The second probe that's been given to Mr. Smith is uh, the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other person at presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation. And we know they stole those documents and we know they lied. They'd return them. I mean, we, we know the laws have been broken. You know, we know that he improperly brought classified documents to Mar-a-Lago and probably elsewhere. <laughs> so maybe there's not enough evidence to charge Trump with obstruction because he lies so much. Who knows when he meant to lie? But people are mad. Our friend Glenn Kirchner was on TV saying this is going to delay justice further when Trump should already have been charged. Neil Katyal was on MSNBC tonight saying Donald Trump is getting ultra special treatment and it's disconcerting. And Donald Trump put out a statement where he said, I have been proven innocent for six years on everything from fake impeachments to Mueller who found no collusion. And now I have to do it more. I am not going to partake in, I announce, and then they appoint a special prosecutor. Okay, that's his statement. Can we break that down? Trump has not been proven innocent about anything for six months. He hasn't been put on trial. He hasn't been exonerated of anything either. I'm so tired of these right-wingers saying he was exonerated in the impeachment. He was not exonerated. You're thinking of the Central Park Five. The fake impeachments were not fake. That was stuff he really did. He really was on tape blackmailing President Zelensky into announcing a scam, sham, fake investigation of Joe Biden, or else you're not going to get those weapons you're supposed to get. And we all saw what he did in public on January 6th. So no, not, not fake. No collusion. Okay, collusion is not a crime. Donald Trump created no collusion so he could claim he was being persecuted and then say there's no proof of collusion. It's not collusion. The crime is conspiracy. Robert Mueller handed the Congress 10 counts of obstruction of justice they could have gone after Trump for. And it was the Democratic Party that chose not to go after Donald Trump. 
but collusion is a bullshit scam term that Trump made up himself, okay? Donald Trump's campaign was neck deep with Russia. If you don't believe us, go ahead and Google why Paul Manafort, his second campaign manager, was fired from the campaign. And finally, my favorite part of this whole statement, uh, I'm not going to partake in it. <laughs> you know, I bet if they put butter and lard in, he'd be happy to partake in it. I bet if there were strippers, he'd be all too eager to partake in it. Um, you don't get to decide which investigations you don't partake in. You have no choice. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Look, I want to know what you guys think. Are you furious that Merrick Garland is kicking this can down the road? Or, 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 hear me out, is this a healthy sign that the gears of justice are grinding forward? The net is closing and that Merrick Garland is putting Donald Trump on notice. Is it just a bunch of prick waving or is it an overture to something deeper? I don't think you could fairly compare it to Robert Mueller. Keep this in mind. Robert Mueller couldn't do anything. He had this DOJ bullshit internal memo that made up this law that said you can't charge a sitting president. Why can't you charge a sitting president? Did the founders want us to have a king who was above the law? No, you can't charge a sitting president. Because we made that shit up. Jack Smith isn't limited by these sort of things. And Trump is a private citizen. So even if it was true, you can't charge a sitting president. Jack Smith has so much more leeway than Robert Mueller could have had. And also, Donald Trump, remember, he, he fired Jeff Sessions and brought in Bill Barr for one reason, to kill the Mueller investigation. I mean, one of his 10 counts of obstruction that the Democratic Party chose not to investigate or prosecute was that he ordered White House counsel Don McGahn to fire Mueller. And Don McGahn, like a military general, ignored what Trump said. And then Trump went to McGahn and asked him to lie to say he never told him to fire Mueller. But that's not going to happen again. Joe Biden is not going to do a single thing to stop Jack Smith. So what do you think is going to happen? Understand one thing. Merrick Garland has confirmed that Donald Trump is under investigation for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power he is under investigation for obstruction of justice. He may be under investigation for obstruction of Congress. And of course, the classified documents. All of those decisions are now going to go to this special independent prosecutor. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be very different from Robert Mueller. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're inspired. My unpopular take is this. And, and don't be mad. I want to know what you think. I don't care. I don't care what Merrick Garland does with Donald Trump. Guys, Donald Trump is never going to be president again. What? You can't say that. You, you, you talked that way in 2016 and look what I... Yeah, 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 I know. 2016 was before Donald Trump led a terrorist attack against our capital. And that's what it was. Democrats used the right word. It was a terrorist attack. The use of violence or the threat of violence to bring about change in policy. Terrorism. So um, I'm not really afraid of Donald Trump ever becoming president. He's never going to get a set policy. He's never going to get to hire judges. Ron DeSantis can Ron DeSantis is a greater threat to voting rights, to abortion rights. He's a greater threat to clean air and water and soil. He's a greater threat to minorities and immigrants and trans children and trans soldiers who want to defend this country. Trans kids who want to use a bathroom they're comfortable in. He really likes to beat up on the little guy. Ron DeSantis is the kind of revoltingly fake Christian who really gets off on taking the marginalized that Jesus orders his followers to protect and uh, treating them like shit so mean people will vote for him. That's his kind of Christianity. Ron DeSantis is extremely popular. He's more popular with the people who run this country than Donald Trump was. He is a greater threat to everything liberals and Democrats and moderates and just plain old anti-evil people talk about. I'm much more scared about Ron DeSantis. And as I've said many times, and I'm sorry, I'm going to keep on saying it. 
we have to keep Donald Trump in this race long enough that he can kneecap Ron DeSantis and mess him up. Now, it might not be popular. It might not be possible. This morning on Stephanie Miller, I, I repeated my terrified theory that Donald Trump is just doing all this to get leverage. He's going to run in primaries. He's going to lose, but he'll rack up delegates. And his condition for dropping out of the race and endorsing Ron DeSantis will be a full pardon against whatever Merrick Garland and Special Prosecutor Jack Smith might charge him with. So, look, (laughs) Trump's going to be in this race no matter what. He's going to be on a debate stage debating people who are loyal to him, and he will berate them. He will shit on them for their obedience. Oh, don't you want to see Tucker run for president? And and, and don't you want to see Chris Christie and Christy Nome and... Oh my God, I want to see all of them. Mike Pence, everyone who carried water for Donald Trump, everyone who lied for Donald Trump deserves to be on a debate stage with him and be berated for their loyalty. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be like jazz. But again, guys, I'm really okay with Merrick Garland waiting on anything until Donald Trump's done burning down the Republican Party. It'd be fun to see him in jail, but I don't need it. I already know orange clashes with orange. I don't need to see him in prison fatigues. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. The great Chris Hauselt is away tonight. Um, we send him our love. Thea Harper is running this thing from Brooklyn. We are very grateful and blessed to have uh, Owen Patterline producing our show. Is it Patterline, Owen, or Paterline? How do I say your name right? My name's Fugel Singh. Patterline. I'm not allowed to mess up a guy's name because my name sounds like fungicide. So thank you. Owen is the Mac tonight. He is running this beast from the Washington, D.C. studios, which I love and miss very much. Sirius XM has a good spread down there. And all night long, we're taking your calls at 866-997-4748. 866-997-GRIT. Hell of a show tonight. Um, we've got some great guests. Uh, one of my favorite pundits and activists you will see on MSNBC is Victor Shi. He's a writer and an organizer and a podcast co-host with Jill Weinbanks, and he's a junior at UCLA. He majors in American literature and culture, and he was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden to the DNC convention in 2020 at the age of 17. He got over 42,000 votes in Illinois' 10th congressional district, and he hosts this podcast, Intergenerational Politics, with uh, the great Jill Weinbanks, former Watergate prosecutor, who just joined us on stage in Chicago last month for our big show. And they've had all kinds of great guests. You know, Kathy Griffin does the show, and Mary Trump does the show, and Madeleine Albright, all people I've dated in the past. Um... No, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, I'm very excited to have Victor Shi with us. We'll be right back with your calls on Sirius XM Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. 
I hope you guys have really good plans for Thanksgiving. Let's go to the phones. 866-997-GRIT. Dave in Washington State. How are you, sir? Hey, good, John. Thanks for taking my call. Look, um, I'll, I'll try to connect a few of these threads as quick as I can. Merrick Garland is an institutionalist. And I yes. think this is where people are kind of disconnecting. Like, there's a caller that I really, really respect. I mean, I've been respecting this caller for years, and I don't but, want to name him. Okay. But he uh, he said that um, Merrick Garland is a conservative. No, Who said this? Which caller said really. this? He, which caller said ahead. this? Go ahead. Which caller said this? Name him. Oh, it's Tim in uh, Michigan. I've been listening to him for years. I love Tim in Michigan, but he's a little <laughs> bit wrong on this. Okay. Uh, what is an institutionalist? Well, let me give you an example. For years and years and years, I warned about Mike Flynn. Institutionalists kept getting in my way. They were like, look, Mike Flynn doesn't, doesn't say all this religious crazy stuff you say, you say Dave. Mike hmm. Flynn is, um, you know, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Dave. Who are these people defending Mike who are these people defending Mike Flynn to you? Because, I mean, I, I think it's great okay. that there's, of course, there are people out there that fall for this, that consume news that doesn't tell you that Michael Flynn was working as a foreign agent and lied on his security clearance forms when he applied for the job. I mean, you know, that, that Mike Flynn was arguing that the U.S. military kidnapped people for the Hungarian government. I mean, Mike Flynn is as is, is dirty as Chris, Christie's hamper. Well, and let me uh, just let me give you another example. Um, General okay. Milley is a good example. General Milley is an institutionalist. He is not woke. That is absurd. That is completely absurd. None of them are. All right, these guys that came out against Trump, Clapper and Brennan, these guys could be could have very well gotten along with Donald Trump. An institutionalist, look, Donald Trump it throws money at the organization. Yes. Are you, no one can deny that. Yeah. An institutionalist that takes the money and does their job. They don't rock the boat, okay? And this is what Merrick Garland is. And this is a big problem we have, and it's, it's, it's going to come to a head. There's yeah. a story that, no, all right, Donald Trump during his speech, he, what institutions did he criticize? The electoral system of the United States and Islam. All those dictators, <laughs> if you listen, he did not say anything about he did not say anything about Xi's China. He did not say anything about Putin's Russia. Mm. He, he didn't say anything about North Korea's uh, Kim's North Korea. He's very careful because he likes yeah. those guys. Of course, and, you will the, not find him criticizing any dictators or the people they murder. He will not do it. Dave, I got to run because I want to get to one more call before the break. But thank you so much for joining us. Happy Friday. Uh, Matthew in New Jersey. Thanks for your patience. Welcome. Hi, John. Thank you for hey. taking my call. I've been listening to you for months. First time calling. Um, oh, my. I'm sorry for all of it. I'm sorry for all of it. I didn't mean any of it. It's all just it's all just I'm doing this on a dare. I promise. Go ahead. Uh, no, I did, I did just want to say that I agree with you. I think um, to an extent Merrick Garland is correct in making a, a move to appoint a special counsel so that the investigation doesn't continue to be called political by the right. I'm just also I can't help but feel that the crimes are just right in front of our nose. And right. We just want to see some action. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if an action movie didn't have any music under it, it would just be. I mean, I'm like, why aren't there federal charges for Donald Trump being on tape with the secretary of state of Georgia pressuring the man to commit fraud? 
I mean, he's on tape. Right. Like we, we have the evidence. Everyone who's furious about this, I understand it. It seems like it's the next level in a formal indictment. And there has never been an attorney general in the history of our country who has indicted a former president. So I understand Merrick Garland is going to be extra meticulous about this. But at the same time, I appreciate everybody's frustration on it. I mean, it's yeah, been two I years. Mean, you need more time. You need more time after two years, really? Yeah. But at the, at the same time, I don't know if you saw Lady Blah Blah, as you so lovingly call her, yes. um, tweeted in all caps, impeach Merrick Garland. I don't know what we'd impeach him for, but it seems like that's, uh, <laughs> that's the route that the right. Yeah, they're also they also down, want to impeach so. Fauci and they want to impeach Hunter Biden uh, and they want to impeach Hillary right. Clinton. Yeah. So, they, I mean, they just they're yeah. just going to be impeaching up and down the street. It's a great way to spend our tax dollars, right? (laughs) You know what? Why should you believe what they promised to do now? Right. Why should anyone believe when they say they're going to impeach all these people? They're going to try and impeach Joe Biden for the Afghanistan withdrawal. And I actually think they should. I'd love a national dialogue about how Trump and Pompeo freed those 5,000 Taliban and negotiated an earlier release date. Right. If you're going to air some things out or criticize the the left, you got to criticize the the GOP just as equally. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I don't know. Um, I just I try to do my best to kind of keep my head down and go about my, uh, my 40 hour work week. I'm just really hoping that now that we have a split, you know, the GOP has the House, we have progressives or the Democrats have the Senate. I hope that we could see something done for the American people other than just partisan name calling and non non progress. I hope so as well. I hope so as well. I think the Democrats do best when they campaign as moderates and then govern as uh, as progressives um, because we need the reform. I'm filled with hope that the next two years, American voters are going to see the results of who they voted in in 2020. Whatever you think of Joe Biden. And I was never a big fan growing up. Uh, but whatever you think of him, I can't believe how much he's achieved in the last two years. And we're going to see in two years so many jobs created because of the infrastructure bill and the PACT Act. We're going to see like like our seniors are going to be paying so much less for drugs because now the government can negotiate with Big Pharma. There's going to be a lot of results the Democrats can run on. They're not going to need names. But I hope you're right. Matthew, I'm honored you would call in. Thank you very much for joining our evil army of the night. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm so excited to have Victor Shee on the phone. I'm such a fan of this guy, all over social media and uh, my MSNBC. We'll be right back. This is Progress. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-GRIT. Uh, and a quick reminder, if you enjoyed the recent conversations with Bob Woodward or, my God, we just had uh, we just had Jonathan Price on talking about The Crown the other night. Julian Lennon and William Shatner just returned to the show. You can hear all of those on the podcast, on demand, or on the SiriusXM app. I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. You might know Victor Shi. He's a speaker, a writer, an organizer, an activist, a podcast co-host with our good friend Jill Weinbanks. You might see him on TV all the time. He was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden to the DNC convention in 2020 at age 17. Yes, he got over 42,000 votes in Illinois' 10th congressional district. He was offered a position as an organizer on the Joe Biden for President campaign. And uh, the podcast is Intergenerational Politics with the great Jill Weinbanks. And you've seen Victor on MSNBC, CNN, NBC, ABC. He is uh, a real, real inspiring figure, whether they call him Gen Z or not. What a pleasure to welcome Victor Xi to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. 
Thanks so much for the kind words. It's great to be on with you, John. Actually, I saw you for the first time live at Stephanie Miller's show. And so it's surreal for me to share a Zoom space with you now. Well, very nice. Thank you for coming to my, my creepy Zoom room. Which, which Stephanie Miller show were you at? Were you at the one in D.C.? No, the one in L.A. It was with you, Rob Reiner, and Glenn Kirshner, which was oh, a the one we did, the one we just had. Yeah. yeah, the one last month. Oh, yes. I'm, yeah. Yep. What a mm-hmm. hell of a crowd that night. Well, I'm, I'm really honored. Thank you for coming yes. to see us play. Thank you. Well, I mean, you're, you know, it, it's in a way I'm kind of sick of people talk, you know, introducing you as like, oh, this is the, the, the Gen Z spokesperson, uh, the Gen Z pundit, the Gen Z Democrat. I kind of think that you do a fine job on your own merits without having your generational label slapped on you. But but it, it's true that you're at your junior year in college and you're doing all this? Yeah, so I'm currently a junior and um, currently trying to balance kind of school and then also uh, politics and and campaigns. And so it's been a bit of a wild ride. And so I'm um, just grateful to be on every kind of show I can and and kind of hopefully get the message out there about the importance of the young vote, which was uh, critical in this past election. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's amazing. I mean, obviously, black women save democracy every election. And thank you, black women, for saving democracy all the time. But this year, Gen Z helped black women. I mean, these numbers are astonishing. And I think the best part of it is that um, the people who think they own our politics had no idea it was coming. I mean, you're so right. And when you look at the Gen Z vote breakdown and and kind of who turned out, especially among Gen Zers, it was young black women and young Latino women who came out there and made their voices heard. And you have to remember, these are the people who have been most marginalized in our voting system, yet they showed up, they made their voices heard. And as a result, I think they should be represented and included in those conversations in government, because these are people who, um, you know, I think there was one statistic that said that the group that actually turned out the lowest was young white people. And so I I think for anyone who didn't vote in this election, um, you know, they don't have a right to complain. It's those who voted who deserve a seat at the table. And what you saw overwhelmingly was black, young black women and young Latino women go out there and make their voices heard in this election overwhelmingly. You had actually tweeted that the the data shows 18 to 29 year olds voted for Democrats over Republicans by 14 percent more than any other age group. You say, don't get me wrong, the midterm election took all of us turning out. But it's even clearer now that without young voters, there would have been a red wave. I think the other big takeaway is um, young people aren't getting polled. Young people don't Mm -hmm. have landline phones to pick up. And young people and a lot of uh, grown up people and uh, middle aged, older people, seniors don't answer their cell phones when they don't know who the caller is. I think the undercounting of people of color and the undercounting of Gen Z voters is one of the greatest signs that conventional polling as we know it is done. Look, I don't know who thought for young people that they would pick up a phone call from a pollster that would last 30 minutes when they don't even pick up their phone calls from their parents. Uh, I mean, it, it's actually quite a, like a, I don't know, I, I, like there was an error among pollsters and it was kind of really apparent in this election because going up to the election, you remember, I mean, there were all these pundits and people who said there would be a red wave that Republicans would win overwhelmingly, Democrats would get crushed. But young voters turn out this election in overwhelming numbers. And I think that's what kind of flipped that red wave and allowed Democrats to not only hold on to the Senate, but also uh, stave off some losses in the Senate and uh, in the House. And so I think what you're seeing now is that I, I would trust polls a lot less than I once did. And that's because young people just simply don't pick up the phone. And so what you what might work for an older generation simply doesn't work for young people because of how we uh, kind of live and how digitally connected we are. Yeah. And as you said on your Twitter and your print tweet, young people aren't oblivious. We know Republicans don't have any real policy platform. And we made it clear on Tuesday we won't stand for what they don't have to offer. Exactly right. But I, I also would add to that. 
Um, we haven't given enough credit, not just to all the young women who came out because of Roe v. Wade getting gutted, but a lot of young men came out and voted because of Roe v. Wade, because obviously yeah. it affects male lives as well. And uh, there are yeah. a lot of young men that have empathy. They've grown up in a culture where women have the same rights that their mothers and grandmothers had. I, I don't have a memory of abortion not being legal. And I, I do think that, you know, as much as we give that credit for, for being a driver, I think that we also have to acknowledge that it was a lot of young guys, in addition to the young women, who came out to protest what happened to Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. And I, I think it, it's worth remembering that it takes two to actually kind of make this possible. And so for young women, I mean, they were more willing to have these conversations with, you know, maybe their boyfriends. And, and this was a conversation that was that young people were willing to have. And so everyone was kind of made aware of this issue. And no matter what gender you are, it's hard to look at a Supreme Court uh, and, and kind of take them seriously or take this Republican Party seriously when it's not just abortion. It's also a lot of other issues that are systemically and really kind of intentionally targeting the young lives. So you saw this all the way back in the spring when uh, Republicans down in Florida and other Republican controlled state legislatures were basically coming into classrooms and controlling what could be said in classrooms. They were banning discussions about what type of racial things you can talk about. They were banning yeah. LGBTQ kids from uh, talking about their identities and teachers from expressing that. And so I think that for a lot of young people, it wasn't just abortion. It was also so many of the other kind of attacks on our lives that kind yeah. of drove everyone to the polls. But when you just talk about abortion, I mean, that was kind of top of mind for so many voters. And, um, you know, I think I would imagine, at least among my friends, there were a lot of conversations that were happening between young women and young guys uh, about kind of the future of reproductive rights. Well, and also, you know, young people... The Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert of the world aren't fixing their talking points to get young people votes. They're doing it to get angry right, old right. white people votes. And and thoughts and prayers, Lauren Boebert uh, will still be in Congress. Adam Frisch has conceded as of today, uh, which is not, you know, the news we hoped for. But my God, she, she carried this district handily two years ago. And this time, I mean, yes, what exactly. was it, like a couple hundred votes she squeaked by with? It was... It was 20,000 to uh, more than 20,000 two years ago, and it was just five, a little over 500 this time around. And so there is if this kind of continues, hopefully in 2024, when when everyone else is up for reelection, we can uh, elect Lauren Bober out of office, because like you said, I mean, these Republicans are trying to, quote, appeal to young people. But all they have to offer uh, since the election was, you know, they want to raise the voting age, which is absurd because they want yeah. uh, they think it's OK for young people to have access to an AR-15, but not to the ballot box, which mm -hmm. is uh, just crazy. And you also have them just kind of continuing their attacks on young people. I think there was a tweet yesterday by this far right extreme Republican who basically said that Gen Z is stupid for voting for yes. Democrats. You don't yes. appeal to young oh. people by attacking us and degrading kind of our the way that we behave. You you do it by kind of delivering for us and meeting us where we are and kind of having those conversations. They can't so do I that. They Victor, learn. they can't do that. They can't broaden the tent. Yeah. They, they they have nothing to offer, so they can't pretend they do. They've got to go for old people who can't stand young people. I mean, right. <laughs> that's that's it. But speaking of Lauren Boebert, I, I want to get your take on this because I think we're on the same page. Um, when I get down, Mr. She, I think about the living hell that will be Kevin McCarthy's life the moment he yep. takes that gavel into his hand because he's going to have to control his caucus, which is filled with people like Ms. Boebert, like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, like yep. Matt Gates, who despise him, who don't respect him. Yeah. And he seems to think that groveling before all of his constituencies, the way he groveled before Trump, 
I mean, let's not forget, Kevin McCarthy's on tape in 2015 saying Trump takes money from Russia. And now he goes down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss a ring. His his life is going to be a comical tragedy uh, for the rest of us to watch while the Democrats get their new team in working order. If you want to see the difference between someone who can actually whip a caucus and someone who can't whip a caucus, I'll just present you Nancy Pelosi versus Kevin McCarthy. Nancy Pelosi, like we've seen all this time, she is someone who is able to whip younger progressives, moderate Republicans, uh, everyone in between to make sure that they kind of fall in line. Kevin McCarthy has none of those skills. He's someone who is really, I, I heard Rick Wilson say this, and I couldn't agree more, a speaker in name only, a sino, basically. Right. It's not a Republican name only. It's a speaker in name only. You see this time and time again, especially after January 6th. This was something that Liz Cheney critiqued Kevin McCarthy on heavily. He came out after you know, he came out against Donald Trump on January 6th. The next day, he was basically <laughs> flipped his position and said what he did was OK and didn't hold him accountable. And so it's just so confusing. This guy has a glass jaw. He has no form of whipping his caucus. And he thinks he can rein in someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. There is no way he can do that when he can't even stand up to Donald Trump. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting next two years of kind of the country looking at the difference between someone like Nancy Pelosi doing her job so effectively and someone like Kevin McCarthy not even being able to whip his own caucus. I completely agree. It's going to be amazing to watch. And I I, I think maybe Nancy Pelosi's greatest achievement, her most consequential, lasting achievement next to pushing through the ACA was just the message discipline of 2017 and 2018, how she kept these Democrats together from the pro-life Democrats all the way to the Democratic Socialists and kept them. I mean, I've never seen Democrats in array like she pulled off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before, and you're going to see Republicans in disarray and Democrats in array. I totally agree. Uh, before I let you go, sir, uh, please come back. Let's do this more often. It's really a pleasure to have you uh, yeah. as part of our evil army of the night. We'd love to have you back and have you in person sometime when we're in D.C. or L.A. But um, your thoughts on Twitter, it, it seems like it's going to last the weekend, Victor, doesn't it? I really think so. But I mean, I'm not an engineer. I'm not someone who is in that Twitter community space. But I was doom, doom scrolling a little bit last night and um, it was it was strange. I mean, everyone was kind of acting like it was the end of the world. And you know, I, I was like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, this thing might collapse. And if not, I mean, I don't have a Mastodon. I don't I don't kind of have that alternative platform. Maybe I should. But I just um, broke down and got Mastodon. And it's <laughs> oh, gosh, I mean, I might have to do the same. It's definitely who knows what's going to happen. And I you know, in a way, I kind of want Twitter to survive because I think it does create a valuable space for a lot of journalists, for a lot of reporting to happen. And so. Um, it's a scary place. It's a dangerous place on Twitter, but it's also, I think, a good place. And I hope it survives because uh, I don't know what the alternative is, but we'll see. It's it's here so far as we talk. I know. I love seeing all my friends on the left who've just been calling it a racist infected hellscape for the last five years. But for the last two days, it's all been, I've met so many wonderful people and this site has changed my life. Yeah. I love you all. <laughs> so yes, exactly. it's, 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 it has been very, very funny, but I, I, I respect that you're staying on it because I'm staying on it as well. Um, I will go down with this ship. You know, I, I kind of feel like if you didn't leave America when a petulant millionaire at birth temporarily took things over, why would you leave Twitter when yeah. a petulant millionaire done, at birth we, temporarily we takes things much, over? Much, much more. Exactly. Uh, Mr. Victor Shee, it is such a joy to have you with us. Uh, longtime fan, first time suck up. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with your work? Thanks so much. I mean, likewise, right back at you. Um, so you can find me again on uh, Twitter, Victor Shi 2020 is my handle. If that breaks down, 
I guess Instagram is really the only other alternative. It's victor.shu12. And then um, I come up with weekly podcasts with Jill every uh, Wednesday through audio and then every Tuesday live. So it's iGen Politics. And um, you can also follow my updates on uh, Twitter. Well, let me let me get you and Jill on together sometime. Can we do that and promote the podcast? Because yes. she's done the show a million times and, 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 and I love her. We should definitely get you on the on. We were both we are both such fans of yours. And so oh, thank you. Um, you have to come on the podcast, too. We will make it a Absolutely. You know, I've had so many UCLA alums and professors. It's nice to actually have an active student. My wife went to UCLA (laughs) and I spent a lot of time on your campus. Uh, Best of luck to you. Please come join us again. And thanks for your work. It's really inspiring. Will do. Thanks so much for your work, too. The great Victor Shee. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. I'm John Fugel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest back to the show. Uh, we had author Sarah Chauncey on about a year ago because she wrote one of the most moving books uh, I had read in a long time. And, and one of the things we're trying to do here at Progress After Dark is to balance out all the politics with some sanity. And uh, Ms. Chauncey wrote one of the best books about pets and what pets give humans. Uh, and we, we had her on to talk about her book. It's an illustrated gift book for adults who are grieving a companion cat, and it's celebrating the the quirky and mysterious and often a wonderful bond between humans and uh, and, and felines. Um, you know, for thousands of years, uh, the ancient Egypts worshipped cat. Egyptians worshipped cats as a god. They stopped about 2,000 years ago, but no one told the cats. And I'm a dog person trapped in a cat person's life, so this book was very healing for me. Anyway, we had Sarah Chauncey on and talked about her book, P.S. I Love You More Than Tuna. And I couldn't believe the response from our listeners, how many people were just like, oh, I love that you did a segment on pets and, and, and they, they love the book and they wanted her back and wanted her back. And I just thought, well, OK, uh, that's cool. Let's let's find the right occasion. And then I, I just saw, um, you know what happened last year for pets? <laughs> if you got a pet during the pandemic, you you might find this funny. This is a report put out by the pet care company Rover.com, and they found that um, we're not going to be forgetting COVID for a long time because the most popular pet name, one of the most popular pet names of 2021 was Fauci, uh, which went <laughs> up 270 percent from 2020 to 2021 as a pet name. Dogs named Zoom were up 443 percent in 2021 from 20. Uh, also, Siri and Google were very, very popular pet names last year. Uh, the pet name COVID went up 35% from 2020 to 2021. Folks, why? Why would you name your dog? Why would you do that and name your dog COVID? Um, the, the most popular name of animals last year, you'll be thankful to know, was Grogu, uh, a baby Yoda from The Mandalorian. So the worst thing there was just not being original. But anyway, back to my point. Sarah Chauncey's written and edited for in nearly every medium for a couple of decades. She's been featured on EckhartToll.com and Modern Loss, uh, Canadian Living. She lives on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And this book, P.S. I Love You More Than Tuna, is one of the more heartfelt, it's like a kids book for adults who are grieving a companion cat i lost my cat last year shortly before i got this book and i sobbed sobbed like a tesla executive looking at how my stock is going down uh it is a great pleasure to welcome uh back to the show sarah chauncey thank you so much john for having me back and thank you so much um, I got to I got to say, uh, I was inspired to look up some data after your last visit. Thirty one point eight million American households own cats and a majority of those houses uh, own two. And during the pandemic, almost a quarter of Americans adopted a pet up from less than five percent 
in, in 2019 and a real decline over the past five years. Um, revenue for pet toys, beds, treats and food went up nearly 50 percent in this time. And the pandemic also saw a huge decline in the number of pets being given up for adoption. The euthanasia rate for shelter pets went down 43 percent nationwide during the pandemic, which I found incredible. So it just seems like, to some degree, our mental health is going to be tied in to our companions. And very often, pets are a lot more nice to be around than children. (laughs) Or adults. I have to say this about Siri, naming your pet Siri, even when I just say, hey, sweetie, Siri pops up on my phone. (laughs) So I can't imagine the poor people who've named their animals Siri. Uh, I I totally can't either. (laughs) I I, I just, I I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, I love this book so much and it got me through a really tough time when I was grieving the loss of a pet and it it couldn't Mm. be more timely for how many people turn to their pets, you know, for, for comfort. I mean, cat adoptions went up eight, it went up 40% in the first eight months. What do you think this says about the role that animals play in our lives, especially during challenging times? I think all animals, you know, we as humans are expressions of nature, you know, animals, trees, we all got DNA, we all are connected in this way. But humans are the ones who often forget about it. You know, we live in our heads and we think and we do and and animals bring us back into presence. They remind us that, you know, we are whole and lovable just as we are. Yeah. And we don't have to achieve and accomplish and do and win and all these human-made constructs that we come up with. Um, and that's true of cats, dogs, horses, all kinds of animals. I I just wanted to add that we also have had a number of people grieving other animals who have found tuna helpful. So I wanted to kind of open wow. it up a little bit. I can imagine. I mean, you know, science, we talked about this last year, science has shown that there are real and measurable ways that cats can benefit our lives, like literally lowering our stress levels, warding off loneliness and depression. I mean, what, what for you are the greatest benefits? Oh, wow. Um, that's a great question. I think there's a difference with the cat who inspired the tuna book and my current cat. Um, How so? Well, Hedda, who's the one who inspired the book, A Little Black Cat, really kind of taught me presence, taught me how to be in the moment, how to appreciate things around me without having to have an opinion on everything. And that's not to say she doesn't have opinions. You know, I'm sure your cats, too, when it's dinner time, they have an opinion. Um, But just this sense of love and witnessing, you know, all of us as humans, I think one of the great human desires is to be seen and accepted as we are. And animals do that for us in a way that often humans don't even. And we allow ourselves to be vulnerable around animals. You know, the ugly cries, the the snotty cries. I keep going back yeah. to crying, but it's more yeah. than just that. It's, you know, I was flat broke for seven years, pretty much. Um, and I had no, there was having, you know, I had done this other work and then all of a sudden I had nothing. Hedda didn't care. She wanted to be with me. Yeah. 
and Ariel, my current cat, uh, I'm, I'm convinced she's here to make me laugh and get me off my devices. Um, <laughs> because she'll always kind of lie on each one right as I'm about to grab it. Yeah. And with her, it's really about lightening up, getting out of my head. Yeah. I wanted to mention something which is a little, I just started this and I just learned about it, but there, I was getting bombarded by Instagram ads for something called the trust technique, which okay. is about bonding more deeply with your animal. And it really is about coming into presence and stopping thought, which as you know, humans, especially us intellectual types are not really good at. And it was a great practice for me and I began doing it. And every time I stopped my thought, Arrow would lie down and go to sleep. So they're reflections of us too. They reflect back what's going on inside us. That's much more elegant than my answer. I, I just wanted a cat because I, I like conditional love and boxes of shit in my house. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've rescued several in my life and, and uh, I, I have two right now. I lost one last year. Um, one of my favorite, like I, I'm a big fan of macho guys who love cats like, like Hemingway. And I want to quote Mark Twain to you from his biography. Okay. By, what, by what right has the dog come to be regarded as a noble animal? The more brutal and cruel and unjust you are to him, the more your fawning and adoring slave he becomes. Whereas, if you shamefully misuse a cat once, she will always maintain a dignified reserve toward you afterwards. You will never get her full confidence again. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm curious. I mean, this is the subject of your book, but, but what have you learned in the process of your book tour promoting it about how we should respond most compassionately to friends who are grieving the loss of a pet? That is a really good question. Um, there, there is no wrong way to grieve as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think as far as many people are concerned, simply being there, being present, reflecting back to the person for example, I know how much Bix meant to you mm -hmm. and what a great life you gave him. And just reflecting that back and saying, you know, this animal and you had a really special bond. And sure, our culture doesn't, you know, doesn't really honor that. But that doesn't make it untrue. Yeah. And al allowing the person to grieve however they need to, because some people will sob and some are not very expressive. And it's just very individual. I think everyone grieves in their own way and needs to be allowed to. I mean, I, I've, I've been through a lot of pets and I'll never forget a couple of years ago when one of them, we had two cats and one died and we had one left and my wife was right away. Let's get a new cat. I'm like, we, we have to, we have to wear a shroud. I, I need to put on my burqa and, and, and mourn. I got to wear a black armband and, and not leave the house. We have, we have to grieve. And my wife's like, no, let's give another cat a home right now. And I thought it was sacrilege. I'm like, it's so disrespectful to the dead cat who doesn't care at all if we get another kitten and give a kitten at home. And I went along with it. And it completely changed my perspective on things. And, and I'm a big fan now of, of, you know, grieving through action. If you lose a pet, mm. one way to show love to that pet is to show love to another creature that needs a home. And it sort of forced me to realize that, that we all grieve differently. And sometimes the way we grieve our animal companions can evolve and change like we do. Yes. And you bring up a good point, which is in families... 
each person may have a different grief style. Your wife was ready to adopt right away. You weren't. And there's a whole kind of negotiation. And I am a firm believer that if people aren't ready, they shouldn't be pushed. But of course, in that relationship, you need to negotiate that. And it worked out as it did. Can I tell you, we do a political show here, but like this topic is something no. that divide. This topic is something that divides my friends so much when I talk about it. People get so passionate about the issue of: Do you get a new pet as soon as one's dead, or do you give it a six month oh. mourning period? I mean, people are more passionate in their opinions about that subject than about you know who should have the nuclear arsenal. The midterms, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was reading last night that in ancient Egypt, losing a pet of any kind was an eyebrow shaving moment. And you grieved until your eyebrows grew back. Really? I don't know if that's actually accurate, but I, I don't want to spread misinformation about ancient Egypt. But Well, I mean, there was a study in 2009 in neurology. They found a link specifically between cats. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that having a dog or a cat in your house will increase your health and well-being. But this 2009 study showed that having a cat has a specific correlation to a reduction in an owner's risk for cardiovascular disease and death. Because when it comes Mm -hmm. to this calming effect, cats have something dogs don't, they purr. The the, the vibration has been scientifically proven to lower blood pressure in humans. And also it's, there's a saying among physicians that if you put a bunch of broken bones in a room and a cat, the bones will repair themselves. There's a healing part there. You um, have a great blog uh, called Living the Mess, Inner Peace for Overthinkers, which is <laughs> terrific. And you have a, a recent post called Five Ways to Find Moments of Joy in Everyday Life, which uh, really drew me in. We had um, some First Nations guests on last night with a book about, you know, using First Nations indigenous spirituality to help yourself, because I kind of feel like part of the gaslighting that the media and politicians have to do is to make us crazy all the time and on edge all the time. And if you turn to cable news to calm down, you're just going to see a lot of commercials for the pill you need to take to feel better or the pill you need to take to counteract the side effect of that other pill you're already taking for that other thing. Um, Really, we've only got a couple minutes, but I I do want to talk about this. The five ways to find moments of joy in everyday life. I, I view everything you list here as like a meditation of action. And with all the strife we've seen this year and all the strife that's going to be coming in the new year with the new Congress, I I think it's more important than Mm -hmm. ever to be able to unplug and ground yourself. Can you run through these these five ways to find moments of joy? Because I I find it keeps me from murdering people to do some of these things. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Uh, Well, the first one I, I wanted just to touch base for a second on, you know, I live in the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish people and the Snanimu First Nation. And I think there is a lot we can learn from indigenous people. Yes. Um, I could go on that way forever. Uh, so looking for things to appreciate. I mean, you and I have known each other for 30 years, and I used to be one of the snarkiest, most cynical, negative people. I mean, I had some sort of hope in me, but what really kind of transformed my anxiety and depression was beginning to look for things, not necessarily gratitude, but just things that are beautiful and that I like, Mm -hmm. like a mural or my cat's purr. Mm -hmm. And there's no moral sense of like, you should be grateful for this young man or lady. But it's like, oh, even when the world is going to hell, there's still beauty. 
Yeah. Yeah. For me, a, a big practice has been a giving practice. And yes. as we're coming into the holiday season, I love just being able to meet someone else's need in the moment. And, you know, I grew up in a family where that was like, you have to do this, you have to do this. So I resented it for a long time. But what I've learned is that we can't receive what it is we aren't willing to give others, right. whether that's, you know, money, patience, compassion. If I'm talking to somebody and they're being really rigid and defensive in their posture, that's a cue for me to look at how rigid and defensive I'm being and to Correct. relax that in myself. Well, we've only got a minute left, but I want to run through the other ones really quick and, and, yes, and get people yes. to go to the blog. Give is the make contact, from, so. <laughs> well, make contact with an animal. I think we covered here as, as get into nature or yep, watch I nature videos, but, yes. but this is the one that intrigued me the most. Give the mind a break from itself. You're talking about getting out yes. of our own way, right? Yes, absolutely. Because our thoughts are not reality. You know, I write a lot about observing our thoughts and in terms of mindfulness and action, we have to be able to look at and question our conditioning in order to undo it and in order to affect true social change. Um, but what I mean here is that, oh, God, the intellect can feel like a 20 ton weight sometimes. And I know that, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it just means taking a break from that. You know what? What if you look at something and don't have to have an opinion about it? What? Or just I, kind what? of rest. I know. <laughs> no hot takes on something? How, how, how will I define myself and define my worth? <laughs> what Sarah Chauncey, about? <laughs> I so wanted to have you back before Thanksgiving to talk about this book. I got so much feedback from listeners last year when you first appeared. Um, the book, again, is P.S. I Love You More Than Tuna. It is a great book if you've ever lost an animal you loved or know someone you care about who has. Sarah Chauncey, what is the best way for our listeners and our evil army of the night to follow you and keep up with all your doings? <laughs> Well, I've, I've left Twitter, and it looks like I was just ahead of the wreckage. The website for Living the Mess is livingthemess.com. And on Instagram for animals, it's more than tuna at more than tuna. My personal side is Sarah K. Chauncey. And yeah, I think that covers it. Thank you so much Thank for coming back. Thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. And you'll be back on Twitter. We'll be waiting for you. 